morning, Southern family. For the scripture reading today is going to be Romans uh, 3, verse uh, 21 to 26. Romans 3, 21 to 26. Righteousness through faith. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and, and the prophet testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all, to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus, by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice, sacrifice of atonem, atonem, sorry, <laughs> through faith uh, and his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as uh, to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Amen. Good morning. Let's pause and approach the throne of God once more together. Let's pray. Father, we adore you and we give you praise and thanks for the rescue mission, for sending your son to faithless and loveless and graceless ones such as us. Father, it is an extravagant thing when we consider the cross. It is a, indeed a glorious, magnificent thing. And we pray this morning as we climb the hill of Calvary again together in this preaching time that your spirit would be working in our midst, that, Lord, you would cause us to see with fresh eyes the, the glory and the greatness of Jesus May his reputation be made great in our midst this morning. And Lord, as we leave this place later, may we be humbled afresh uh, into action uh, to be witnesses for you in our corner of the world, whatever that is, and to perhaps tell someone this week of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and about his cross. So Lord, be with us, be in our midst uh, Help my weakness this morning, I pray. Uh, may your power be made great in this place, in spite of me. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin this morning in this third sermon on our series, in our series on the cross of Jesus Christ, by talking about a very unpopular subject. And that is the subject of God's wrath. 
Most of us don't like to talk about God's wrath, or if we had our preference, we would much rather dwell on God's love or on God's grace. So, Pastor, why take time on a perfectly good Sunday when the sun is shining to discuss God's wrath? Well, for a couple of reasons. First, because the Bible that most of us cherish engages the subject of God's wrath more frequently than we might think. And secondly, because the concept, the reality of God's wrath against human sin is critical or it is determinative to the idea of propitiation, uh, which is today's crossword. Propitiation is a subject that we will arrive at a little bit later on this morning. I want to start by giving you a few definitions of what God's wrath is from a couple of different theologians whose work I trust. First, Leon Morris, who wrote a very important book by the title of The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross. Morris says that God's wrath is a burning zeal for the right coupled with a perfect hatred for everything that is evil. Again, God's wrath is a burning zeal for the right coupled with a perfect hatred in God for everything that is evil. In another place, Morris says further that God's wrath is his strong and settled opposition to all that is evil arising out of God's very nature. One more time, a strong and settled opposition to all that is evil arriving out of God's very nature. And in still another place, Morris describes God's wrath as an eternal recoil against the unholy on the part of an all-holy God. An eternal recoil against the unholy on the part of an all-holy God. Well, that's Leon Morris. Quite helpful, I would say, in helping us define what God's wrath is from a very thoroughgoing biblical perspective. The other helpful theologian here, I find, is J.I. Packer, who puts the matter as follows. Packer says, God's wrath, listen, arises from his intense, settled hatred of all sin and is the tangible expression of his inflexible determination to punish it. We might say, says Packer, that God's wrath is his justice in action. God's wrath is God's justice against sin, which he hates, put into action. And so Packer, too, I think, is helpful as we try to understand what God's wrath is according to the Bible. Now, as we begin to develop a sort of portrait from the pages of Scripture of what God's wrath is, what God's wrath looks like, I want to spend this morning considerable time 
and give you seven pegs or seven observations from the Bible about the nature and the character and the shape of God's wrath. So here goes. The first thing that we need to be crystal clear on as we talk about God's wrath is this, that God's wrath is of a very different character than human wrath. I want to say that again for the sake of the recorded sermon because I think it is just so very important. God's wrath is of a very different character than human wrath. When we human beings get angry, or when we get wrathful, what happens in general terms? What happens? Well, we're famous for nursing anger, first of all, for holding on to it and nurturing it and feeding it instead of seeking for reconciliation. Amen. I'm glad to hear somebody say amen. Our anger can also be a sort of out-of-control rage in a, a sort of irrational leap into madness, so to speak. Our wrath can arise very suddenly, can't it? And it can be sort of infantile, I would say, in its character. I know that's been true of me time and time again. And our human anger can also be dripping with malicious intent and with resentment. And our anger, even though we might like to think that it's sometimes righteous indignation, it's usually 99.9% .9 of the time not righteous indignation. It's normally coated up, I would say, with about four coats of sin, whether we want to realize that fact or not. Human anger can be very petty, can it not? It can be very petty in nature. It can often be tainted with a sort of selfish pride. And again, it can be kindled just so very easily. By contrast, God's anger or God's wrath is very different. God never loses control in his wrath, ever. His is always a totally controlled burn, a controlled wrath. And God's anger, in contrast to ours, is always, listen, always, 110% of the time, always totally righteous in nature. God's anger is never provoked by an injured, vain ego like ours can be. I think a great little summary of the difference between God's wrath and our wrath is given, again, by J.I. Packer, who's written a lot of great stuff on this. He says this, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. He says it is instead a right and necessary reaction 
to objective moral evil. So in our consideration of God's wrath, we need to strive for, renew our minds with, a proper and biblical portrait. We have to guard against, as best we can, simply equating God's wrath with what we know about our own human wrath. God's wrath is of a very different order than human wrath. The second thing that we can say about the wrath of God, as understood from the Bible, is that God's wrath is a motivated wrath. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by motivated wrath? Well, I mean simply that our holy God's wrath is always motivated by something. Namely, God's wrath is motivated by the evil of his creatures. Amen? God's wrath is not roused without a stimulus. It comes as a result of human sin. It is a motivated wrath. An example that shows that this is the case is a text like Numbers 25.3, where Israel, in defiance of God, Israel yokes herself to Baal of Peor, And that idolatrous sin on the part of Israel is what motivates, what kindles God's wrath. Or take Deuteronomy 29, verses 25 through 28. There, Israel is said to abandon covenant, to go and worship and serve gods other than Yahweh. Therefore, the wrath of God is kindled. God's wrath is roused or motivated by human sin. And, of course, many further examples of the same pattern, if you want to jot them down, many examples could be drawn in here. Joshua 7.1, 2 Chronicles 32, uh, 32.25, Isaiah 5, verses 22 through 25, and Isaiah 63.10, just to name four further Old Testament examples that teach us that divine wrath is motivated or it is roused by human sin. And in the New Testament, of course, we have the same pattern, the same teaching that human sin is the motivator of God's wrath. In places like Romans 1.18, where the ungodliness and unrighteousness of human beings is what arouses the wrath of God. We also have Romans 2.5, where hard and impenitent hearts store up wrath for the day of wrath, says Paul. And we have Romans 2.8, where self-seeking and disobedient people are promised divine wrath. And we have further texts that teach the same thing, like Colossians 3 verses 5 and 6, and Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 6, just to name two more. God's wrath is motivated, we need to understand, by human sin. That's the second thing that we want to say this morning. The third thing to say about God's wrath, listen carefully, is that it has a real connection to God's love, in fact. God's wrath is connected to, it is tethered to, God's love. 
God's wrath, to use the, the words of John Frame, is an outworking of God's love. How is this so? Well, let me try to illustrate for you. You have a child who you love dearly. And he or she is thirsty. And you have access to fresh, pure, cold, uncontaminated water. And so that's what you give your child because you love your child. You know that the fresh water is going to be good for the child whom you love. But now here comes a stranger with evil intent barging into the room at that very moment with a cup of cyanide, making a beeline for your child, and your child gets up and runs for the cyanide. Your child even wants the cyanide. At that moment, you are going to do whatever it takes because you love your child to incapacitate the stranger to knock the cup of cyanide out of his hand and then teach your child, hopefully in a very stern sort of a fashion, that cyanide is poison. God's wrath is aroused by the cyanide of sin because God loves those who are affected by the cyanide. God's wrath seeks, in a just fashion it seeks, to punish sin because God knows that sin wreaks havoc with the human creatures that he loves. God reacts adversely to sin. God's wrath is kindled by sinners who want sin and who commit sin. And this adverse reaction of God happens because God is good. Because God loves his human creatures and God hates the poison of sin with divine intensity. God's wrath is an outworking of God's love. That's the third thing about God's wrath that we want to say this morning as we develop a biblical picture of that wrath. Now, The fourth thing is this, and I want you to listen carefully here. That God's wrath is most often in the Bible described as a future thing, but it also appears at times as something in the present. So in the Old Testament, God's wrath was sometimes manifested in a present moment, like when Adam and Eve sinned and then were banished. It's a manifestation of God's wrath banished from the garden because of their sin, or in the present, like the time when Israel was banished painfully to Babylon because of their sin against God. Wrath manifested in the present. But at other times, God's wrath was something that would be manifest in the future. For example, Psalm 110.5. We looked at Psalm 110 a number of weeks ago. Psalm 110.5 had talked about a future day of wrath, as did sections of Isaiah 13 and Zephaniah 1 and Zephaniah 2. In the New Testament, 
the future aspect of God's wrath, still future to us, is picked up and developed in several places. John the Baptist, as he preaches, around the time when Jesus came, he preaches and warns of the wrath to come. In Matthew 3.7, Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 talks about the wrath to come. Not to mention Romans 2.5, where Paul also talks about a future day of wrath. Colossians 3.6, where again, wrath is something that is yet to come. So divine wrath in the New Testament and in the Old Testament is mostly a future thing. But there are those few places in the New Testament where God's wrath is described as a present thing, as something that is happening in the now. The classic case where divine wrath is a now thing is Romans 1.18 and following, where Paul says, he doesn't say, he doesn't say, he doesn't say the wrath of God will be revealed there, but rather the wrath of God is, present tense in Greek, is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. There is a very real sense, friends, in which divine wrath is always operating in the now and being manifested in the present in our sin-sick world. Listen again to J.I. Packer here as he gives. I'm going to give you this great meditation that he gives us on Romans 1.18 through, through verse 31. Packer says, now listen to this. He says, to those who have eyes to see, tokens of the active wrath of God appear here and now in the actual state of humankind. Everywhere the Christian observes a pattern of degeneration constantly working itself out from knowledge of God to worship of that which is not God and from idolatry to immorality of an ever grosser sort so that each generation grows a fresh crop of ungodliness and unrighteousness. Packer says, in this decline, we are to recognize the present action of divine wrath in a process, he says, of judicial hardening, God hardening people's hearts, and withdrawal of restraints, whereby people are given up, listen, to their own corrupt preferences and so come to put into practice more and more uninhibitedly the lusts of their sinful hearts. He says, Paul describes the process as he knew it from his Bible and, his, and the world of his day, in Romans 1, verses 19 through 31, where the key phrases are, God gave them over to sexual impurity. 
God gave them over to shameful lusts. He gave them over to a depraved mind. Present wrath. And this present wrath of God in Romans 1, interestingly enough, takes this shape. It takes the shape of God handing over sinners to themselves. This wrath of God in Romans 1 is God letting people go their own sinful way as they desire without his interference. It's him abandoning stubborn sinners to their willful self-centeredness, to quote John Stott. Now, friends, do we live in a society where there is rampant moral and social corruption? If the answer is yes, we can chalk it up to this preliminary present stage of the wrath of God where God gives people over to their wicked inclinations with all the resultant chaos. It's our fourth point about God's wrath. It's mostly future in the Bible, but it is also described sometimes as something already present with us. In fifth place, as we walk in humility this morning around the truth of God's wrath, we need to stress that God's wrath is a terrible, dire, cataclysmic thing. We see this in scripture. Psalm 76, 7 talks about no one standing when God's anger is roused. Psalm 2, 5 speaks of God's fury being terrifying. Psalm 90, verse 7 describes people being brought to an end by the anger of God. Jeremiah 42.18 talks about people being made a horror because of the wrath of God. And all over the place in the Bible, God's wrath is spoken of in terms of fire, in terms of burning, in terms of heat, and even in terms of smoking in Psalm 74.1. Again, the fifth thing here is that God's wrath, we need to understand, God's wrath that is kindled because of human sin is a terrible, dire, cataclysmic thing. No two ways about it. Even though, as we said earlier, God's wrath remains tethered to God's love. Well, in sixth place, and we need to grasp this also about God's wrath. Listen carefully. The fact is that people like you and like me, so we created fallen human beings who live under God, we choose wrath. We opt for wrath. Oh yes, we do. We choose, as fallen human beings living outside of grace, to follow a course 
that leads to wrath. The person who has fallen, who defies God, is choosing a path that leads to wrath. By defying him, by steering clear of him, which fallen people do, hiding from him, by choosing the darkness that we love, says Jesus in John 3.19. We choose the path of sin that leads inevitably and leads inexorably to the wrath of God. That's the sixth thing. Our chosen defiance of God as fallen human beings is like taking a can, a giant can of black spray paint and spraying it all over God's masterpiece, all over ourselves. In the words of Donald MacLeod, our sin has ruined God's masterpiece, men and women. It has filled the earth with hatred and violence. Any violence in the world today or hatred? Our sin has turned the world, he says, into an idolatrous, blasphemous conspiracy against God and against all good order. What's our situation? In the words of J.I. Packer, once again, he says, he puts it concisely, he says, human beings are opposed to God in their sin, and God is opposed to men in his holiness. Wrath from the holy, uncreated, eternal, almighty, righteous, and just God must be meted out must be carried out on this rank mutiny from his self-righteous, God-denying, God-hating creatures. Let's quickly review our first six pegs about God's wrath before we travel forward to the finish line. First, we were reminded that God's wrath is very different than human wrath. Second, we argued that the wrath of God is a motivated wrath. It is motivated by the evil of God's creatures. Third, we said that God's wrath is connected, believe it or not. It's connected to God's love. Fourth, we observe that God's wrath is both a future and it is a present thing in the Bible. Fifth, we should certainly understand God's wrath as the terrible and dire thing that it is. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. And sixth, we choose God's wrath as fallen people. We are inclined as fallen people in this world to the path of sin that results in wrath. And you may be wondering, after all of that, where is the cross? I thought this sermon was a sermon about the cross of Jesus. Well, let's move forward to the cross now, having finished the introduction. <laughs> Here is the seventh point about God's wrath. Listen very carefully. Now, our God's wrath is a very real thing. The future day of wrath is a terrible and cataclysmic and real 
future for the person who dies defying God, who dies spurning the Son of God. But as real and as terrible as God's wrath is, God, listen, God throughout Scripture demonstrates to us that He is eager to defer His wrath, to turn from His anger. God, says the Bible, is eager to forgive persons who turn from their sin. That is the character of God. Now just allow me to shower you with some texts that reveal a desire in God that his wrath would not have the last word. First of all, and most basically, there are all those texts where God reveals himself as slow to anger. Amen? Amen. We think here of Exodus 34.6, and we think of Psalm 103.8, and Joel 2.13, and Jonah 4.2, slow to anger. In Isaiah 48.9, God talks there about deferring his anger. In Deuteronomy 13, verses 17 and 18, that's a good one. There is the possibility there that God might, listen, turn from the fierceness of his anger and show mercy and have compassion. In Psalm 78:38, God restrained his anger and did not stir up all his wrath on people who had lied to him and who had broken covenant with him. In Psalm 85:3, God withdraws his wrath and turns from the anger that he had had toward his own people. In Micah 7.18, the prophet is confident that God does not retain his anger forever because God delights in hesed, in steadfast love. Our seventh point this morning is that as real and as terrible as the wrath of God is, God, throughout the scriptures, demonstrates to us that he is eager to defer his wrath, to turn away from it. The cross of Jesus Christ is where God turns his wrath away from sinners who had earned that wrath and pours it out elsewhere. The cross of Jesus is where God averts his wrath away from the sinners who deserved the wrath. He gives astounding mercy to demerited sinners who merited the wrath of God because of their sin. Wrath is averted from them. But at the same time, friends, being the just and the holy God that he is, wrath had to come on human sin, and so wrath is poured out, but on the God-man, Jesus Christ. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit could have stood aside in almighty 
unanimous agreement that because humans sinned against God, humans should and would get the wrath of God that they deserve. We humans offended Father, Son, and Spirit by our sin, and so rightfully we should receive the onslaught of the Trinity's wrath. But here's what happens instead. The Holy Spirit was unanimous in eternal counsel that something else would take place. The Son would take on flesh. He would be born into the sin-sick world. And this would happen because of the tender mercy of God, according to Luke 178. Yes. The Father's merciful initiative was that the Son of God would be born into the sin-sick world for the ultimate purpose of dying on the cross. John 3.16, we've quoted it many times over past weeks, God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only Son. You see two persons of the Trinity in John 3.16. 1 John 4.10, God the Father loved us and sent his Son. The initiative called the cross is the merciful and loving initiative of the Father who was offended with human sin. As John Stott puts it so very well and so memorably, listen to this. He says, God's love is the source of and not the consequence of the atonement. It's the source, not the consequence of the atonement. He says, God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loved us. Yes. The Father's love, how deep the Father's love, the Father's love provided the cross even though the Father was offended with those who would benefit from the cross. And the Son, the Son was also offended with human sin, just as much as the Father. The Son, who was and is equal with the Father, don't ever forget that, he is equal, not subordinate, Equal with the Father, the Son was utterly and completely willing to undertake and accomplish the plan of the cross. How unanimous were Father and Son in the plan of the cross? How willing and how zealous was Jesus to accomplish the initiative of the Father? Well, we see Jesus' love for the Father and his desire that the Father's will be accomplished all over the place in the Gospels, don't we? Jesus said that his food was to do the will of him who sent him and accomplish his work, John 4.34, his very food, the stuff of his life. In John 8.29, Jesus said that he always did the things that were pleasing to the Father. In John 18.11, Jesus said, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? 
Philippians 2.8 tells us that Jesus was obedient to the Father. How far? To the point of death, even death on a cross. Father and Son were unanimous and zealous to accomplish the cross. And the Spirit, who was also just as offended with human sin as Father and Son were, the Spirit who is equal with the Son and equal with the Father, the Spirit was unanimous with Father and Son concerning the cross. The Spirit remains zealous, even this very day, to shine light on and to reveal the full glory of the cross and to apply the cross in order to glorify the Son. But now the problem we've explored today is the problem of the wrath of God which must be poured out from a holy and from a just God on the sin of human beings. How does the cross of Jesus Christ address this gargantuan problem of wrath on human sin. Now, we all may have problems in our everyday lives, but I'm here to tell you today that this is your biggest problem. The wrath of God that was coming on your sin. Please focus with me for most of our remaining moments now on Romans 3, verse 25. We heard the passage read this morning. The immediate context of Romans 3.25 tells us, without any doubt it tells us, that the one being put forward here is Jesus. Romans 3.25 is telling us that, here's what was happening on the cross. It tells us that God the Father put forward, or God the Father set forth, You may have that in your version. Or God the Father presented. Or God the Father publicly displayed Jesus, the Son, as a hilasterion in the original Greek. Jesus, the Son, was put forward as a hilasterion. Now believe me when I tell you this morning that much ink has been spilt in arguing the question, how should we translate this Greek word, hilasterion, here at Romans 3.25? If you have the NIV, you'll notice that the NIV committee has gone with sacrifice of atonement as a rendering for hilasterion in Romans 3.25. The Net Bible has the words mercy seat, The ESV, the King James Version, and some others have the word propitiation here. The New American Bible has the word expiation here. Now, without getting into the details of the debate, I want to say that hilasterion here at Romans 3.25 probably carries more than one meaning. I would want to argue... At the very least, I would want to argue that we are to understand Paul here as saying that the Father publicly displayed the Son on the cross as an expiation slash propitiation. Now, these are $50 words, aren't they? So what is expiation, first of all? Well, to expiate in the theological sense is to remove sin. 
or to cover over sin, or to put away sin, so that, listen carefully, sin is really the focus or the object of expiation. It's very important. When we talk about expiation, sin is the object. Jesus was put forward by the Father at the cross as God's expiation, as a sacrifice that would put away, that would remove the stain of human sin. I think expiation is definitely part of the meaning of this Greek word here in Romans 3.25. But now we need to understand further that expiation, listen carefully, the removal of sin, putting away of sin, expiation is not an end unto itself. Expiation blossoms over into propitiation. Propitiation is our crossword today. Propitiation was happening at the cross. Propitiation had been planned to happen at Calvary in the eternal council of the Trinity. What is propitiation? Well, to propitiate in basic terms is to deal with someone's anger. To propitiate is to appease wrath. To propitiate is to satisfy wrath, usually with a peace offering. The holiness and justice of God dictate that God must execute wrath on sin and on sinners. If God is to be true to his holy self, can that wrath somehow be averted from the sinful creatures? That's the question we're dealing with with this concept of propitiation. Now, in ancient pagan religions outside of Judaism and outside of Christianity, propitiation or the appeasement of wrath looked like this. You're in a pagan ancient religion. And if you suspected that a given God was wrathful toward you, that he was irritated with you or angry with you, then you, the human worshiper, sought to essentially bribe that God into dropping his wrath. So you would go and you'd get a fine vegetable offering or a fine animal offering, bring your God some chocolates. In some cases, in those cultures, even a human offering. And you gave that offering to your God in the hope that God would be appeased. Your God would be appeased and would then act favorably toward you again. Now, we need to understand, and this is very important this morning. We're wrapping up here. We need to understand, though, that the difference between that pagan conception of propitiation and the concept of propitiation in biblical faith is a massive difference. Are you with me? Listen. Look once again at Romans 3.25. Set your eyes on the text. Notice the first words of the verse. And here's my question for you as you look at the verse. Who is it that puts forward the propitiatory sacrifice in the New Testament? Is it human beings who come to God with vegetables or paltry rice cakes thinking that they can somehow bribe God into dropping his wrath. Is it humans? No, 
The text says, listen carefully, that God himself, listen, he puts forth the propitiatory sacrifice. God does. You see this? Just as it had been back in the Old Testament sacrificial system where, who was it that gave the blood? God gave the blood to atone for human sin. Leviticus 17, 11, I give you the blood. So it is here in Romans 3.25. God puts forth Christ and his blood as the propitiation. In other words, listen, God himself puts forward a sacrifice from within himself that will satisfy God's own wrath. From within himself, from within the Trinity, God takes care of God's wrath so that we sinners who deserve that wrath don't get the wrath. Amen? Amen. It's too quiet. We benefit with staggering blessing here and untold grace. The God-man Jesus who is made sin, to quote 2 Corinthians 5.21, he takes the wrath of God that had to come on human sin so that God's wrath is then averted from us in mercy. Have you understood mercy? Mercy and grace and extravagant, almost unbelievable love. And God's wrath is exhausted. To use the term of Jerry Bridges, God's wrath is exhausted on the Son of God. Bridges says this, that Jesus bore the full, unmitigated brunt of God's wrath. He emptied the cup. That's what the cup was that he was praying about in Gethsemane. It's the cup of the wrath of God. He emptied the cup of God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to face that dreadful reality. Friends, propitiation or the appeasement of God's wrath by a sacrifice is happening on the cross. God is transacting with himself on the cross. The second person in his self-sacrifice is willingly dealing with the wrath of God and exhausting the wrath of God that had to come on human sin and thereby God is appeased. God is transacting with himself on the cross, which is why we have texts like Hebrews 9.14 that says that Christ offered himself to God on the cross, not for us humans or for our human sin in Hebrews 9.14, but rather the cross there is God offering to God. Just as it is in Ephesians 5.2 where the crucified Jesus is again an offering and sacrifice to God. On the cross, God offers to himself the sacrifice that deals with God's wrath. The cross in one very real sense is a transaction within the Trinity. And for us, again, we get this unbelievable blessing because of it. I want to read you 
a summary here as John Stott summarizes propitiation so expertly. And, and please allow this truth to sink in this morning. We're hammering at it because we, we need to understand it and live out of the grace of it. He says, it is God himself, I love Stott, it is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. God himself who in holy love undertook to do the propitiating. And God himself, who in the person of his son, died for the propitiation of our sins. Thus God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it his own self in his own son when he took our place and died for us. Yes. Hallelujah. Yes. Let this truth settle on you today. Let this gospel of grace humble you and let it drive you to Jesus this week. John Murray said that propitiation is that God loved the objects of his wrath. Did you catch that? God loved the objects of his wrath so much. That's enough right there, isn't it? That he gave his own son to the end that he by his blood should make provision for the removal of his wrath. He says it was Christ's so to deal with the wrath that the loved would no longer be the objects of his wrath and love would achieve its aim of making the children of wrath the children of God's good pleasure. <laughs> yes. Now, if you're a believer, you are aware, and then I'm done, that once upon a time you were a child of wrath. To quote Ephesians 2, 3. But now, and hear me well, you need not fear the wrath to come because the one you trust, Jesus Christ, has taken God's wrath already for you on the cross. It's the crucified, risen Jesus who, to quote 1 Thessalonians 1, 10, delivers us from what? From the wrath to come. As J.I. Packer says, between us sinners and the thunderclouds of divine wrath stands the cross of the Lord Jesus. If we are Christ's through faith, then we are justified through the cross and the wrath will never touch us, neither here nor hereafter. Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. It's good news for the believer, but friend, listen very carefully. If you're a person sitting here today who has not trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, please hear the solemn declaration of Jesus himself over your life this morning. In John 3.36, Jesus says this. He says, listen carefully to what he says. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's Jesus. My unbelieving friend, you are right now under the wrath of God, and you can expect the dreadful, terrible, divine wrath that we talked about today that will come on Judgment Day, 
you can expect that wrath if you happen to get to that awful day still refusing, still spurning, still denying the Son of God, Jesus Christ. You can expect the unmitigated full brunt of the wrath of God. I counsel you this morning to receive the one who died for your sins, the God-man, Jesus Christ. I plead with you to trust the one who exhausted the wrath of God on the cross so that you won't have to. All you have to do is open your spiritual hand and receive him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Indeed, hallowed be your name. Lord God, we know that you are the sovereign God in control of our history, in control of world history. We know that in your eternal counsel, you decided that Jesus Christ would be the rescue for lost sinners. And I pray, Spirit, that someone here today has heard the message and turns to you in this moment receives you as Lord and Savior, repents of his or her sin, and follows you. This is our prayer. Be with us now, Lord, as we go to the table, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. May the bliss of that glorious thought comfort you in all your troubles so that you may comfort those in trouble with the comfort you have received from God. Amen.